So we're going to begin a study then of the prophet Elisha. And what I want to focus on on a Sunday is chapter 4 of 2 Kings. I want us to look at the, the three stories that we have. In fact, that the third story is uh, in chapter 5 and the story of Naaman. Three stories stand out in his ministry. The first is the widow, uh, the widow of one of the sons of the prophets that you have in verses 1 through to 7. And uh, next Sunday, we'll be taking a look at this widow. The second story then, beginning at verse 8, is the story of the Shunammite woman. She's introduced to us in great detail. She is a wealthy woman. She's a woman of considerable influence and standing in her community. And uh, the story continues as far as verse 37. Then we look at the third story, and that's the story of Naaman. Naaman is an officer in the army of Israel's enemy. So today he would be seen as uh, our enemy, and to aid him would be seen as an act of treachery. But Elisha heals him of his leprosy. So three major stories then in the ministry of Elisha. Why should we on a Sunday spend our time looking at these three stories? Well, let me give you a few reasons. The first is Elisha ministers at a time of crisis for the people of God. And it's the kind of crisis that they had not experienced before. What you have is one book. So in our Bibles, it's one Kings, two Kings, but it's one book. And it's known as the royal book. It's meant to be the story of the kings of Israel and Judah. But what you notice is the kings uh, have been forced by the writer into the background. So we learn very little about the kings. We have brief introductions to them. We have a summary of the kind of king they were, and all Israel's kings were evil. Some of the kings of Judah sought the Lord. But we have very little information about the kings. What stands out in this royal book is, first of all, the ministry of Elijah, and then, second, the ministry of Elisha. So a time of crisis for the people of God because the leaders of the people are wicked. So how will God's people fare during a time of crisis? What will their experience be like? Whom will they turn to for help and support? And what about the surrounding nations? So first reason, it's a time of crisis. And then the second and, and the main reason, I think, is because Jesus, when he begins his ministry in his hometown of Nazareth, he identifies himself and his ministry with Elijah and Elisha. And what I want us to see as we study Elisha is that his ministry points forward 
to the Lord Jesus Christ. So much so, do you remember the occasion when Jesus is in the synagogue, he's given the book of the prophet Isaiah, he reads about the spirit of the Lord being upon the chosen one, and then in his preaching, he mentions Elijah and Elisha. So we'll find Christ in these pages. So let's introduce Elisha to us. And I want to do what I often do on a Sunday, and that's ask you to follow me as we look up different references uh, in our Bibles. So let's start then by looking at the scope of the story. Just how big a story Elisha's is. Will you turn with me then to 1 Kings 19 and verse 19. And this is where we meet Elisha. Now, we've had the focus on Elijah for two, perhaps three chapters. And then Elisha is introduced. And I want you to notice the way that Elisha is introduced to us. So 1 Kings 19, 19. So Elijah departed from there and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, who was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen before him and he himself was with the twelfth now I want you to hold on to that and ask now as we take a look what's the significance of twelve yoke of oxen excuse me a second so Elijah passed by him and threw his mantle on him and he left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said Please let me kiss my father and my mother, and then I will follow you. Elijah said to him, Go back again, for what have I done to you? So Elisha turned back from him and took a yoke of oxen and slaughtered them and boiled their flesh using the oxen's equipment and gave it to the people, and they ate. Then he arose and followed Elijah, and became his servant. So hold on to then these 12 yoke of oxen. This is where Elisha is introduced to us, and then let's take a look at the ending of the story. Turn to 2 Kings and uh, chapter 13, and we'll see there the end or the death of Elisha. So can you see how many chapters we have given to us containing the story of Elisha. So Elisha's ending then, 2 Kings 13, verse 14. Elisha had become sick with the illness of which he would die. Then Joash, the king of Israel, came down to see him and wept over his face and said, O my father, my father, the chariots of Israel and their horsemen. Now we're going to end tonight with that phrase, the chariots of Israel and their horsemen. Now Elijah said to him, take a bow and and some arrows. So he did so. Then he said to the king of Israel, put your hand on the bow. So he put his hand on it and Elisha put his hands over the king's hands. Then he said, open the east window. And he opened it. Then Elisha said, shoot, and he shot. And he said, the arrow of the Lord's deliverance 
and the arrow of deliverance from Syria. For you must strike the Syrians at Aphek till you have destroyed them. Then he said, take the arrows. So he took them. And he said to the king of Israel, strike the ground. So he struck three times and stopped. And the man of God was angry with him and said, you should have struck five or six times. Then you would have struck Syria till you had destroyed it. But now you shall strike Syria only three times. And so Elisha died and they buried him. And those bands of raiders from Moab invaded the land in the spring of that year. And they arrived at the time when they were burying a man. And they suddenly spied the band of raiders and they put the dead man in the tomb of Elisha. And when the man was let down and touched the bones of Elisha, he revived and stood on his feet. How does the story of Elisha end? It ends with the idea of death and resurrection. And that's incredibly important in our understanding of Elisha and our understanding of how Elisha points forward to the Lord Jesus Christ. So I want you to notice a couple of things in what we've just seen. Elisha's introduced ploughing a field. Now, can you remember, what did Elijah announce in his opening remarks? Elijah announced a famine. And during the entire time of Elijah's ministry and Elisha's ministry, there's the most severe famine which affects not only Israel, but the surrounding nations. Even Elijah's victory on Mount Carmel does not change the famine. So what impression do you have of Elisha, who during a famine can afford 12 yoken of oxen to plough his field? That's how we meet him. Think about the 12 and think about what Elisha does. And then if you look at uh, 2 Kings 13, just notice some of the things that uh, we can see there. How is Elisha referred to by the man who writes this history? And he is always called the man of God. He's never referred to as a prophet. He is always described as a man of God. And uh, what you find very interesting is that God never speaks directly to Elisha as he did to Elijah. And then we get this phrase I've pointed out to you already, verse 14, the chariots of Israel and their horsemen. Now, we'll finish with that, but before we do so, I want you to turn to a second passage this evening. And uh, it's one that's key to the understanding of Elisha. And uh, I want you to turn to 2 Kings and uh, chapter 2. So we said there's lots of looking around in our text. Let's turn to 2 Kings chapter 2. And in this chapter, you have the death of Elijah. And there are two things to notice from Elisha's point of view this evening. I want you to think about a very well-known request. Take a look at verse 9. And so it was, when they had crossed over, 
that Elijah said to Elisha, Ask, what may I do for you before I am taken away? And Elisha said, Please let a double portion of your spirit be upon me. That's a crucial statement. Elisha asks a very difficult thing. Elijah puts down some conditions that Elisha has to fulfill. He needs to be still having his eyes on Elijah if this request is to be fulfilled. Now think of all the dramatic events. He's going to witness a chariot of fire. Then there'll be a whirlwind. But Elijah is saying to Elisha, he's got to keep his eyes on him. Not on the fire, the chariots, or the whirlwind. But if he can maintain his gaze on Elijah, then a double portion of the Spirit will be his. Let's think about what that means. Elisha is asking to be a double agent. He wants to double the works of Elijah. And I want to very briefly show you how Elisha doubles the work of Elijah. So let's start thinking. How many miracles did Elijah do? Now, I'm not expecting you to know. I'm sure many of you can identify some of the miracles that Elijah performed. If you were to add them up, you would find that Elijah does eight miracles. Now, if you were to do the same for Elisha, and ask the question, how many miracles does Elisha do? Then you won't be surprised to find that he performs 16. He is doubling the ministry, the miracles of Elijah. And that's what he asks for in this verse in 2 Kings and uh, chapter 2. I want you to think of some of those miracles and what you'll know, if you know your Old Testament, is there is a certain overlap in the kind of miracles that Elijah and Elisha do. So Elijah, in chapter 17, I think, he will do a miracle of raising the sun from the dead. Elijah will also do a miracle of uh, the oil and the flour for the widow. And when Elisha comes along in chapter 4 of 2 Kings, he does the same. So can you see the overlap between the ministry of Elijah and the ministry of Elisha? But can you see what the difference is? So turn to 1 Kings 17, and you've got Elijah and the widow's oil. Now take a look at that account. So we're in 1 Kings 17, from verse 8 down. And as you look at that... It's a very famous account. There's the widow gathering sticks. She's run out of all her resources. She's got very little left. She's got no hope at all. There's her and her son. And Elijah intervenes. Now, if you can, look it up, sure. But if you can, hold in your mind the story of Elisha that we've just read. That woman and the oil. Can you see a difference in the two stories? Can you see a difference 
that reflects the fact that Elisha has asked for a double portion of the Spirit of God. Now, I'm not going to point it out to you. I want you to see the difference in these two stories. They are so similar. They're stories of widows. They're stories of desperation. They're stories of loss of hope. There's very little left. Their resources are running out. The, the widow in uh, Elisha's story, she's being hounded by her creditors for a debt that she can't pay. And the creditor is threatening to take her sons. Well, there it is. I've given it to you, haven't I? What's the difference in the stories? Elisha is a widow with one son. Elisha has a widow with two sons. There is the doubling motif in the story of Elisha. Now, next Sunday, we look at this widow. And to get you ready for next Sunday, I want you to think about who could this widow be? 2 Kings chapter 4. She says to Elisha, you know my husband, one of the sons of the prophets, is dead. Who is she, do you think? Think about who she may be. But you see this doubling idea. It's right throughout the story of Elisha. Whatever Elijah does, Elisha does and doubles the effect. Now, it's the same with the story of the widow and her son. Elisha has this widow and uh, her son dies and he revives the son. Look at the Shunammite woman. We'll see her in a few weeks' time. And I want you to think about how in the story of the Shunammite woman, there's this doubling effect that Elisha has requested. He wants to do not just as Elijah did, he wants to double the work of his master, Elijah. So you see it with the widows, you see it with the Shunammite woman. Let's come back to this idea of the oxen. So it's in 1 Kings and it's in chapter 19. We read it just a few minutes ago. Now, I ask you to think about the significance of the fact that Elisha has 12 yoke of oxen. The number 12. Now, you're all going to say to me, aren't you, straight away, oh, the number 12 is hugely significant. So think of its significance in the story of Elijah. The number 12. What does he do on Mount Carmel? He rebuilds the altar and he uses 12 stones, each symbolizing the tribes of Israel. Then he builds his altar and uh, with that altar then finally constructed and the animals sacrificed, Elisha calls upon the God of heaven to rain down fire to consume the altar's offering. And when that great uh, fire falls and uh, the offering is consumed and the altar is burned and the water is licked, Elisha brings this terrifying judgment of God upon the prophets of Baal. So 12, 12 tribes. You've got in the New Testament, the 12 apostles, the number 12, the people of God. So if you come to Elisha then in 1 Kings 19, 
you've got 12 yoke of oxen. So you're all going to immediately say, it's the number 12. It's the symbol of the people of Israel. There's 12. But what do you read here? 12 yoke of oxen. What is that actually telling you? It's telling you that there are 24. You have the idea of doubling. So even before Elisha has made his request, even before he follows Elijah and becomes a prophet, right at the start we meet him as somebody who doubles, who doubles the effect of his master Elijah. And then look at the last verse, verse 21. So we're in 1 Kings 19 and verse 21. Elisha turned back from him, took a yoke of oxen, slaughtered them and boiled their flesh using the ox's own equipment and he gave it to the people and they ate. Now, this is so wonderful. All of us know, don't we, by now, that there's no insignificant detail in the Old Testament. Everything is there uh, for a reason. The, the editors who put the book together, they're building their picture of the prophet. And so here's the prophet taking the last of the, the yoke of oxen, slaughtering them, feeding the people as a result. What does this tell you as a reader of the Old Testament? Remember, there is a famine. There are people dying. There are people with not enough left to eat. They're on the point of starvation. Not just famine, but warfare has brought the people to the very point of extinction. And here's one very wealthy man, Elisha, taking a yoke of oxen and feeding the people of God. The ministry of Elisha is going to be very different to the ministry of Elijah in one respect. Elisha's ministry is a ministry of judgment on the people of God. He brings down wrath. He gives voice to anger. He demonstrates the power of God to punish a people for their sins. And so we get drought, and we get death, and we have blood, and there's great storms. That's the ministry of Elijah. The ministry of Elisha is going to be very different. It's a ministry of healing. It's a ministry of feeding. It's a ministry of reaching out to those who are desperate. It's a ministry of hope. It's a ministry of recovery. His whole ministry will be marked by what we read here in these opening verses. Elisha brings the love and the compassion of God to a people in crisis. He brings the love and compassion of God to the widows, to the wealthy, to the uh, officers in the uh, enemy's army. He brings the love and mercy of God to strangers and foreigners, to those who have no hope, no help, no voice, as well as to those who are powerful. Elisha's ministry is very different. And of course, Elisha's ministry 
is going to end with the note of resurrection. More than any other prophet, Elisha will show us the meaning of resurrection, that there is life after a person has died. So a double portion. He doubles the number of miracles, and when he does a miracle, it's double the effect that Elisha had in his miracles. And he doubles the ministry of Elijah, turning it from a ministry of judgment and wrath to a ministry of hope and resurrection. Now, I think we'll continue some of the details of Elisha in prayer meeting on a Mondays, because we're not going to look at the whole of his ministry. And some of you will know the story well enough to say, well, Neil, aren't there, aren't there exceptions to this idea of Elisha bringing joy and hope and love and mercy? Think of some of what the exceptions may be. Let's take them up in prayer meeting and let's discuss them further. Elisha is going to bring hope to the starving and the bereaved. He's even going to bring hope and this is a terrible image. I'm not sure whether we'll do it on a Sunday or in a, a prayer meeting. But there's one account of Elisha bringing hope to cannibalistic mothers. Mothers who've eaten their own children because of the terrible, dire situation that they find themselves in. So Elisha doubled the portion of Elijah. Well, there's one thing left for us to see, and that's the phrase I pointed out to you earlier. So, last look around then, the, our text, 2 Kings 2 and uh, verse 12. Now, we've been into uh, of 2 Kings once already. Let's take a look now at verse 12. And this is Elijah <coughs> seeing the whirlwind that takes Elijah to heaven. Elisha saw it and he cried out, My father, my father, the chariot of Israel and its horsemen. So here's Elisha crying out in deep grief when Elijah goes to heaven. The chariot of Israel and its horsemen. And as we've seen, just to remind you, go across to 2 Kings 13 and you have the same. It's the death of Elisha now. And with the death of Elisha, you have the king. The king saying, Joash, verse 14, O my father, the chariots of Israel and their horsemen. Now, what's this wonderful phrase? You first hear it then from Elisha's lips as Elijah dies. And then you hear it from the lips of a wicked king when Elisha dies. What does it mean? It's a cry for the work of God to continue. The work of God is in the hands of Elijah, and Elijah dies. What's going to become of the work of God? What will become of the people of God? So when Elijah cries out, uh, the, the chariots of Israel and his horsemen, his cry is to God, continue your work among us. And so Elisha takes up the mantle, strikes the ground, sees whether the river will part. He is asking, will God's work continue now that Elijah 
has gone. And when Joas the king makes the same cry at the death of Elijah, it's the same concern. Will the work of God end? Or will the work of God continue? And so on that note, let's ask ourselves, in the days in which we live, as a congregation of the people of God, is God's work going to end for us? Will the work of God continue in our situation and in the crisis in which we find ourselves in the days in which we live? Is the work of God around one person? And when that one person goes, the work of God ends. But where also is the cry to God from us, the people of God, the cry to God that his work should continue among us, that we don't want his work to end, that we want him to continue, even though everything is against us, that God would continue his work for his name and for his glory. So we've met Elisha then. It's a very brief introduction. Just to remind you, 2 Kings chapter 4, next Sunday, we'll meet this woman, this widow, in debt, Two sons with just one glass of oil left. We're going to take a look at her and we are going to learn the lessons that this story tells us. It's very definitely put in this uh, place for the people of God to learn lessons in a time of crisis. So as we take our leave, let me just remind you again, according to Jewish tradition, who is she, this woman in 2 Kings and chapter 4? 